Welcome to Notes on Vulnerability, a podcast designed to put stories of resilience, courage and being human at the heart of the conversation. In each episode of this podcast, I'm speaking to regular people about their experiences with vulnerability. I've found over the years that vulnerability is a word that many of us automatically associate with weakness, with fear, with being in a position you don't want to be in. And there's no doubt that making yourself vulnerable feels hard. In my experience, vulnerability tends to kick in during those moments when you feel most exposed, which is probably where the negative definitions have come from. We all probably recognise the feeling of vulnerability, whether you're at the start of a marathon or about to tell someone that you love them for the first time. Maybe you're trying to ask for a raise or admit to the fact that you want to get pregnant or something as simple as just apologising when you've done something wrong. There's often a pretty strong instinct to run away (laughs) during these situations. One of the reasons I've started this podcast is to try and get everyone talking about how vulnerability is actually a really positive thing. Okay, maybe not the moment of vulnerability itself when you feel like everyone's looking at you or you said something stupid or someone can see right through all of your carefully constructed defences. But what happens on the other side of that if you're brave enough to just hang in there and stick it out? My guest on this episode of Notes on Vulnerability knows all about that feeling and also about the lengths that we can go to to try and avoid it. David Jacko Jackson is an ex-rugby professional, captain and all-time top scorer at Nottingham RFC, who in 2013 was told that he suffered a head injury in training that had knocked him out. Injuries are par for the course for rugby players and Jacko wasn't unfamiliar with head injuries, but he was told that this one was so serious that any more violent sport could kill him. For many people, this might trigger a retreat from the physical body and trying to live a life of minimal contact and risk. While that might have been a totally understandable initial response, and I'll ask him more about that later, that's not where he's ended up. Instead, Jacko has been exploring the capability of a broken body, as he calls it. And this has led him to become an advanced breathwork coach with Oxygen Advantage and to set up the School of Calisthenics. If you're not familiar with it, Calisthenics is bodyweight resistance training. No equipment, no fancy kit, you just use your own body weight to build muscle. One of the peak moves is the human flag, where you find a pole and basically make yourself horizontal to the pole, but off the ground. Jacko can hold this for over 30 seconds. This is obviously a huge achievement, but it's not what I think is really interesting about Jacko and what he does. In a world that still tells men not to discuss their weaknesses, especially the physical ones, here is someone willing to describe himself as broken. Someone who is willing to talk not just about the moments of triumph, but also about the failures and setbacks that led to them and how those experiences might have made him who he is today. So, Jacko, welcome. Thanks uh, thanks for having me and and, and what a welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, so let's start with the moment that changed everything. Um, what went through your head when you were told that you couldn't play rugby anymore? Um, very interesting question uh, because a number of emotions were going on at the time. And actually, at that point, when I saw um, the neurosurgeon, I had been in that hospital a number of times with this head injury. It was about five months after the first, after the first, you know, when I, I had a seizure on the on the field. Um, from an innocuous challenge, we just, you know, a friend of mine that was there on the day said, like, they, they just, like, initially were just going to laugh because it was two of us on the same team. We were just warming up. We weren't even playing contact or anything, but just mm. banged into each other trying to catch the same ball. And I hit the ground, and everyone was just, like, about to laugh. And then I started fitting on the floor, and it was like, oh, this is serious. Um, put me in the recovery position. And yeah, I don't remember anything until I'm in hospital going, 
what's going on? Where am I? Why are we in hustle? And then uh, it happened. This was about the tenth time I'd probably been in hustle during a thirteen-year career. Um, and so, as soon as I started asking those questions, and the physio was getting really annoyed with me, and I was assuming it was the first time I'd asked that question, I was like, "Elder, I know. I've been here before. I know what's going on." So then I'm like. I've been knocked out, haven't I? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, I've asked you that already, haven't I? He's like, yes, <laughs> just shut up. Um, so it was, I'd, yeah, I, I'd had, I'd been through this process before um, a number of times and it was gradually taking a bit longer for me to get better, but I was always getting better. Whereas months had gone on and I was starting to question, like, I wasn't thinking, when, I wasn't thinking, am I going to play rugby again? I was thinking, am I going to ever get out of this, like, zombie mode that I'm in? Am I ever going to get, be, am I ever going to be able to stay awake long enough and concentrate on a screen or something to be able to like um, to hold down a full time job? That's that's where I was sort of at back in that was December 2013 when I when I had the meeting with the with the neurosurgeon and they they looked at the scan and they showed me a bleed a scar from the bleed that was a sign of um, from the the seizure that I had and they said you know I guess it it sounds dramatic to say another head injury could be fatal but that's the ultimately where it it didn't mean as you know if i banged my head ever again I, I would but it was the way she described it to me was um like yes obviously that 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 could be that that's the worst case scenario but for uh there's no rules in rugby i i could have been allowed to play again there was nothing stopping me in the legislation but um in the laws of rugby sorry rather than rules um and but for in boxing professional boxers if they take uh, if they can't take a standing 10 count um, they have to go for an MRI, and if they have anything come up on the MRI scan, like I had, then um, they take their license off them, so they're not allowed to box again professionally. So it was a very simple decision at that point. The the surgeon was very; um, they were almost worried about telling me that news, whereas it was it was just massive relief. Mm. I I knew it was time to move on. I knew I I the biggest thing for me was I I was actually scared that I wouldn't be. Because I knew I wouldn't be. I should have gave up already. Gave up because I, I probably don't like that. I've never felt like I give up at things. I don't really. I've always pride myself on being like a hard worker and not giving up. I sort of rate those things highly on on what we what we should try and strive for. So, I was worried and scared genuinely that I wouldn't be strong enough to say, put my hand up and say, lads, like I'm. I can't. I'm not good. It doesn't matter what the scans say. Like I am not right. I can't go back on that field so I was actually scared of going back on the field so having having the, the you know the the medical professional say now nah, your time's up I was like oh. <laughs> I didn't say at the time I was pretty much like thank god it was like you know then a load of things start going through your head of going like okay yes you play professional rugby but you know people should understand this it's a it's a far cry from um like the, the amount of money someone has paid in in even low league professional football so we were we were we had a you know you were paid a wage but it you, you, you're not as soon as that's up you're you need to get a new job and you need to have a have a career I just signed a new two-year contract and I remember the physio who I was with uh Navs was a good friend um he was like what are you gonna do <laughs> you know because we knew it's like you know you've got to pay your mortgage it's Christmas um you know thankfully the club I'd been at the club for my well, since I was six years old actually I'd, I'd worked all the way through the through the age groups um, and uh, very good friends with the CEO at the time, Sam Abitham, he was very, very kind. So they honoured my sort of contract up until the April um, mm. to help me get myself back on my feet. Um, and then uh, and then it was like time for a bit of a, a new life, which was, um, 
yeah, by the time by the time April came around, I was starting to feel more back to normal. It still took me a year to be able to run without getting headaches and some of those types of cognitive um, symptoms. Um, but yeah, thankfully, I've made as as far as we can tell now a full recovery. Uh, what lies ahead in the future? That's one of the sort of worrying things with um, with head injuries uh, that there are there are things like early onset of dementia and that type of stuff that that, that can kick off early. Um, but keeping his fingers crossed and saying our prayers at night. So can I just ask, you mentioned there that you didn't feel like you could say to your teammates that you felt like it was mm. time to stop. Why was that? Um, great question. No one's asked me that before. I've talked about this a number of, uh, a number of times over the years, probably less so uh, in, the, in recent times, but why? Uh, I think because I don't, I don't like the idea of quitting and, and giving up on things. As I said, I think I, I, that'll be one of my values that I sort of um, try to stick to. And I, you know, and it's it's probably a stupid is is a stupid ego thing of like, yeah, not wanting to to give it. I guess ultimately, like, I loved playing rugby, so I wanted to carry on, but I knew it wasn't the right thing to do. And as I said, I was I was scared. It sounds a bit sound a bit funny just saying the word scared anyway. But like I was, I was I was scared that I would go back on the field. And yeah, why not strong? I don't know. I don't know. Just. I think it. I think for me, it comes down to that thing of like not wanting to, you know, poor for for poor reasons. I would back then would see like quitting as um, as a sign of weakness. Mm. Um, whereas I think um, I pro- it's probably helped me learn a lot about myself through that whole process and understand that like you know it takes a very uh, it takes a very strong person to go. Like this direction that we're going in, and it might not be like an injury or this, but just this direction that my life is going in isn't what I want. I'm gonna go in this direction. This is this is what this is what I need to do. Um, and there so are... yeah, I've probably learned a lot from that. Hopefully yeah. stronger now because of it. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the narratives around fitness in areas that are quite male dominated are sort of purely about strength and power and smashing it and being massive. And, yeah. um, and it often seems to translate into sort of. Um, don't listen to your body, don't work with your body, real men just get on with it, real men don't quit. Um, But I was reading through your School of um, Calisthenics website and there's kind of a gentleness in there that's a little bit different from that usual narrative. And I was wondering whether it's come from your experience and whether you sort of consciously tried to alter that approach for for people who want to do what you do. Yeah, um, me and Tim, uh, Tim Stevenson, that uh, started the course called School of Calisthenics. I can even say it now. School of Calisthenics <laughs> in 2016. Um, yeah, you know, we have been exactly what you described there. Like we have been um, that previously. Like we've been the trying to get big, trying to get massive, trying to just smash up. Like you know, got th- coming from a rugby background, I was. Um, and only more recently, I've got better at listening to my body and doing like you know the right thing for it. Um, because, you know, you're conditioned in the, when you're playing a sport like rugby for, for your job, you're sort of conditioned and it's part of part and parcel of the course. You know, I played over 300 games. You could count on one hand how many I played without any niggles or any discomfort before the game. Um, it was just part, that, that was just what it is. You know, you would, a lot of the guys would be taped up, ankles, shoulders, everything like all the time for training, let alone games. Um, and so learning to sort of dole down those messages of pain and discomfort so that you can do your job on the field 
um, and you don't want to let your mates down and, and your teammates down and, and, and the team. So I've had to probably spend a long time trying to undo that. Um, and I think that the, the the stuff that we've done with with Scorecast the Knicks, uh, when you're trying to, when you're not using weights to provide your overload, you've got to find different ways to provide your sort of progressive overload for your training. Um, it's also enjoyable to like explore different ranges of motion. So you can't really hide in calisthenics from if you've got tight pain and discomfort around your joints, you're going to know about it. You're going to have to do something. Uh, you don't even be able, you don't even need to be listening even that that well because they'll shout at you. <laughs> that you know. Your shoulders are going to tell you that you need to do something better with them if you're going to improve your handstand, for example, and your hips are going to talk to you if you're going to try and do any decent sort of single leg squat variations and things. So um, that's one thing that that's definitely helped, definitely helped me. And then the other thing more recently um, is the breath work and, and tuning into that to that breathing. Um, there's a whole host of area things that the that the breathing has sort of taught me and and, and changed, literally been life changing for me. Um, Interestingly, as a result of head injuries, we have a, a disruption to your, um, your breathing patterns because of how they're controlled within the, the brainstem, the respiratory center of the brain. So, um, yeah, it's been an important part of my recovery from a head injury without me knowing that that actually was necessary to do. It's only more recent that I found that out. But being able to being able to sort of tune into the body and, and you know, one of the phrases we like to use at the moment is uh, invest in your physical pension as a scorecast. And it's this idea that, you know, you've only got one body and we want to be able to use it for long into the, into the future. We don't want to, um, you know, I don't want to PB tomorrow if that means that I can't like, you know, go climb a mountain when I'm 50. Like I'm not interested in that anymore, but you know, back in the day, that's, that's what it was about. But um, I think what I found that when I finished playing rugby, I thought I would just do the whole lift weights and get big and do all that. And it lasted only a couple of weeks before I was looking around the gym, going, looking at everyone else, going, how, like, I mean, I, I'll never forget this. Cause I was like, how, how are you training so hard? I'm now struggling. I used to like never struggle for motivation. I would train all day, every day. I'd be tired, but like, I would want to, if you know what I mean, because I was trying to get as best person and player I can be to, for a game at the weekend. Whereas, when I stopped playing rugby, I thought, well, I'm super motivated. So I'm just going to smash the gym. And interestingly, my motivation, and I guess this is something that I've learned, like, and it's the same for everyone. Your motivation has to be attached to something, like a reason and a purpose. And my reason and purpose got took away. So what I found was I, I really lacked motivation. I was looking around at other people in the gym going, how are you training so hard? Like, what is it that you're, that you're training for? Um, and, you know, they, might, they may have had some goals and things, but I didn't have that. And calisthenics gave me that, you know, at first it was, I wanted to do a human flag, so I just thought it was cool. Um, and it was pretty much as simple as that, but during it, that it journey, cool. it's, you know, it taught is, you, it's cool. It's yeah, no, and it will always be cool. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's far more than just a cool sort of picture or video. Uh, it teaches you like about your body. You've got to be, you know, consistent with your training, but it all, it, the one thing it's done for me is give me a reason and purpose to be motivated and be consistent with, you know, then being able to train and look after my body. So in a way, like, just tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but there are a couple of things you said there about, you know, not, not being able, you don't want to let the, the lads down the rugby team and not being able to admit when something's too hard or something. And that's mm. kind of, to me, that sounds like an unwillingness to embrace vulnerability, which is probably very common. Mm. Um, but then this other approach of sort of building strength for the long term and being in touch with your body, 
do you think you can be in touch with your body and have body awareness if you're not willing to be vulnerable so how how important is it in kind of strength training um i think you're right i think you're 100 right i think that vulnerability you know if you those two continuums that i've been on of like or that continuum of like rugby player at one end and then what we're doing now at the other end are, are very far very far apart and it's been a it's been a long journey for me over the last what we on i can't believe it's 2021 can you but like eight years since i finished playing rugby um and learned an awful lot and we wouldn't you're sort of conditioned and conditioned yourself to you can't show vulnerability on the rugby field like you just you're just gonna you're gonna lose and the thing about contact sports like rugby losing not only hurts like mentally we don't like it but physically in a game where it where where it's a physical contest when you lose it also hurts physically because you get you know beaten up in in inverted commas um so you can't show vulnerability but then as you say for for really being able to explore our physical potential and and be able to do you know think outside the box and move outside the box i think you're right i think you need to be vulnerable and um tim always says some tim from school guys he always says something that um i've always found difficult to do um but as i say learning and trying to get better is like you got to leave your leave your ego at the door with calisthenics you've got to take whatever you thought you was good at like it's going to show you that there's areas of your body that are either weak either immobile or both and it's a great tool to teach you those things rather than being blissfully unaware of them and then and then do something about it and the bit of doing something about it is you'll become a beginner again and that embracing that beginner's mindset is actually if you can leave your ego at the door be vulnerable and go yeah i'm actually terrible at this thing and you need to do the simplest easiest exercises but the great thing about being at that stage is you make so much progress quickly mm. trying to be the expert all the time your your margin for improvement becomes really really small so um that's been something that's been really really fun um part of that that change of training and learning experience so to like the way you describe vulnerability there it sounds like you kind of in the rugby context at least it's a, you see it as a bad thing so i mean this is quite a big question yeah, to yeah. ask but like where do you think vulnerability fits with masculinity today um i think if i i can i can only sort of relate in my context so i'm doing some work uh, some breath work with like rugby players um that are playing now and it's a very different environment now to when to when i was playing and they are more they you know they are wanting to to do things like breathwork because they can see the benefit to their performance but they do want to um look after themselves more it's it's uh, it, i think times of times have changed in that environment definitely and that's that's the sort of context that i've got to to compare things at um yeah i i i think it's a uh, it would be it's a really great question you you you're stumping me a little bit because i'm just thinking of like you put that word vulnerability into like a into a training environment like a like a rugby team and i think you'd get a lot of pushback mm. i think you'd need to you'd need to package it up slightly differently and that's just the the connotations as as you rightly say but the vul- vulnerability we are attacked or we i say we i'm really just mean me but i'm sure there'll be other people that will resonate the same we attach weakness to vulnerability rather than like strength or opportunity like there's opportunity in vulnerability there's honesty in just vulnerability um and i i would say like change the other side of vulnerability is change and positive change i'm vulnerable at, and and this is something that i need to 
improve at and get better at. Like, um, I think there's honesty and then good, good positive change on the other side of it. I think that there's a challenge from a mindset perspective um, for some of us, and I include myself in this, um, of what springs to mind and what for us when we when we hear that word vulnerability and do we push back against it and if you are pushing back against it as you're listening to this then it's probably something that you need to take some time out to to think about and try and push into a little bit and it's definitely an understandable reaction because i mean if you google vulnerability you get all of these results coming up about you know the vulnerability of your website and you know it's all (laughs) it's all kind of negative um, yeah. That's the reason I started this podcast, really, is to get people thinking about the other side of it, which is that it's that kind of this portal to all the stuff that we actually really want in life, which is, like you said, mm. change, transformation, connection with other people, like love, belonging, joy. None of that is possible without vulnerability. So how can... It's just that little step you have to take through the painfulness of being seen for who you really are, really, isn't it? Like, that's the kind of... Yeah. The tough bit. And that- and I think, and that comes back to a little bit back to like my story of going like not strong enough to to put my hand up and say I I quit I'm done. It's like not being strong enough to be vulnerable. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point because we see it as a weakness, and yet it takes a mm. hell of a lot of strength to takes more strength. Yeah, to be seen for who you are. Definitely, definitely. So uh, you've mentioned this is like a counselling session. I'm loving it. <laughs> I'm learning about <laughs> like, myself still coach. now. As we talk. <laughs> um, I was going to stop. Um, advertising my coaching business there but I won't do that uh, let's talk about the well, I was going to say if people need to but they need to come and speak to you don't they yeah <laughs> if they're thinking about it, if, they're, yeah, if they're challenged by this idea of vulnerability and, and going actually yeah they do I yeah. would say do it I'll, I'll love, do the advert for you <laughs> I'd love to help people through that that's yeah um, so let's talk about the breath work because that's come up a couple yes. of times um, I'm reading a book by Wim Hof at the moment yes um and we've sort of connected over the, the breath work and cold water swimming and stuff. And right at the yes. start, he says, breath is the door. Without breath, what is there? It's where you and I and everyone else begin. And it's got, I found that quite powerful because for me, I only started to do breath work recently. And I, I've always dismissed it, despite being a yogi for like 15 years. Right. I've always been a bit like, oh, breath work is too gentle. They need to do more chaturangas and handstands. Um and I've sort of dismissed it as incon- inconsequential in terms of impact on body or mind. And then I started actually doing it. And it has this incredible, like it's, it's an incredible impact. Why do you feel it's so important? Um, well, I like that. Yeah, I say um, my wife is reading Wim Hof's book at the moment, actually. Um, and like life starts with a breath mm. and it ends with a breath. And then there's obviously a lot of them in between. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think like t- so. From for me, it I didn't realize at the time, but um, a head injury will alter your breathing patterns or has the potential to. It's very, it's highly like you look at the research. There's not loads of research into it, but you look at the research into it, um, and it will alter your. It, it's very highly likely to alter your breathing patterns. How Altering does it the, alter it? Say again. In what way does it alter it? Um, so your sort of um, rather so. In terms of your, there'll be a couple of things. So, in terms of how you're actually breathing, uh, like like biomechanically, in terms of like, are you breathing with your mouth and your upper chest, or are you breathing with your mouth and your diaphragm? Um, it would disrupt our sensitivity or tolerance to carbon dioxide in the blood, which then has a knock-on effect of our ability or bioavailability of um, of oxygen, you know, getting oxygen out of the bloodstream into the into the cells where where it's needed. Um, 
you know, it's also massively linked to um, heart rate variability. And because it's, because the breathing, because it can get like, it can affect all these things, it's then a case of all these things can, can change our breathing patterns. It's like, if we start to then tune back in and take control of our breathing rather than just letting it happen on autopilot, then we're able to then make all these other, make these changes. Like we can improve our, our breathing uh, mechanics. We can improve our, how efficiently we can transfer oxygen. We can improve our CO2 tolerance, which is really important and related to that. That was a big light bulb moment for me learning with the oxygen advantage was like CO2, carbon dioxide is not just a waste gas that you get, you know, at, at school, we break it down and go simply we breathe in oxygen, you breathe out carbon dioxide. Like it's yes, to a degree, but there's this vital role that carbon dioxide plays. We can, we can touch on that if you want to. Um, but uh, yeah, I started about two years ago, just looking at looking at things that are like, what's going on in the background that has the potential to affect a lot of stuff. So I was like, you know, would still be struggling with like tightness through my neck and shoulders and, and things where I was like, I'm doing, I can do yoga, I can do stretching, I can do mobility work and like, but. I, there's so, I just felt like there was something going on in the background. And to me, it made sense that like potentially like breathing could be a part of that. That's something that's going on in the background all the time. It uses muscles. Um, so therefore, like it's a movement pattern. If I'm doing if I'm doing it poorly, then that might be like having like an undercurrent like sort of effect on my body. And, you know, the final piece of the puzzle, the final question was like, well, I've never been taught how to breathe. And he starts to look into it. And my biggest question was always like, okay, so you find out oh, I'm supposed to breathe with my diaphragm, okay. And then it's like, am I doing it right? And that's this, they, I just kept coming up against that. I'm like, I don't know if I'm doing it right. Um, and so that's how I then, yeah, read uh, Richie Norton. I went to one of his, uh, the Strength Temple. He's a yoga teacher and breathwork coach. He's trained with the Oxford Advantage. Um, and, you know, he said, get the, read the Oxford. I was asking him like, is there anything I can read? Like, what would you recommend? He's like, Oxygen Advantage book by um, Patrick McKeon is a game changer. Um, and any time someone says it's a game changer and you trust them, you're like, okay, I need, to, I need to read this thing. And I'm not very good at reading. Like I was terrible at English at school, but I read that thing faster than, and I did the terrible thing of like, I've been coaching all sorts of different things like rugby and S&C and now breath for, I've been coaching for a long time, but I was just so excited about the news of like how important breathing was. Rather than I just like was shouting at people that, that they need to close your mouth and breathe through your nose and oh you got it so important and then you know people just switching off and like not 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 interested because you're just trying to ram it down their throat but that was just because I was excited about it at the start. It's easy to get evangelical when you're passionate about something. <laughs> yeah. <isn't it? laughs> yeah, that's a great way to explain that. Um, so, what role did it play in your recovery? Then you've kind of started to touch it upon it there. Yeah. So. Um, Initially, um, so oh, oh, let's go in reverse. Like the latter part that I found out more recently is that breath holding, which is one element of um, the oxygen advantage technique and approach, where we're looking to improve our tolerance to CO two, so our, and then our, our efficiency of uh, utilizing oxygen within the body um, through breath holding. And I've since found out that actually breath holding is a great driver to improve uh, blood supply to the brain, help drive more oxygen there. Um, and that one of the one of the most important things post concussion or post head injury is that we get reduced blood supply to the brain, and that breath holding is a way to facilitate improving that blood flow. Um, but it's just not something that's currently part of um, 
concussion rehab um, protocols, we're told to do nothing. So is that you literally know? holding your breath? Yeah, so um, with the instruments, you do it all, always after an, a normal exhale. So you do a normal inhale, normal exhale, pinch the nose, and you we, we do you can do it at various different. You can just hold your breath. We we do one where we like nod our head to like clear the nose. Um, you can do it walking. You can do it running. Like change the metabolic demand as in the exercise as you're doing it. But um, essentially, yeah, holding your breath after um, an exhale. And that means that because I would have thought that. Holding your breath means that your brain gets less good stuff. Yeah. So this is where this is where it gets this is where it gets interesting. So when we hold our breath after an exhale, and this is where the oxygen advantage is um, a bit a bit different to, to Wim Hof. This is a question that we always get asked, like, what's the difference? And is which is one best than the other? Like, they're two very different things. They both involve breathing, but oxygen advantage is looking at improving our CO two tolerance for, to be able to slow our breathing patterns down, our breathing habits down, our breathing rates down, which is more relaxing, getting us out of this sort of stress sympathetic state. Um, it's also interested in changing the way we breathe biomechanically. Um, and then the, uh, so that we are using the nose and we are breathing with the diaphragm, our day to day breathing, like that's really, 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 really important for people. Um, you know, rather than this mouth breathing, upper chest, uh, shallow, shorter, uh, linked to our stress response. That's how we breathe when we're stressed. Um, so there's there's that side of it. And then with the oxygen advantage also, the other bit is this breath holding where we're looking to create adaptations to, uh, when you hold your breath, oxygen within the blood goes into the tissue. So blood oxygen starts to go down. CO2 is made in this, uh, produced in the cells as, as, as that waste or byproduct, goes into the into the blood but you know, it can't get transferred out through the lungs because you're holding your breath. So CO2 goes up. So we get this low oxygen, high CO2 effect. So uh, hypoxic is a fancy word for low oxygen, hypercapnic, fancy word for, for high CO2. And these, these create two adaptations. The low oxygen um, stimulates more um, the spleen to release more red blood cells as a sort of like, I'm going to try and help this low oxygen situation so you get more oxygen carrying capacity in the blood. And the high CO2 um, helps buffer... Uh, lactic acid, but importantly, improves our tolerance to CO2. So the respiratory center in the brain, um, which is that is monitoring uh, to dictate when you take your next breath or have that desire to breathe, is monitoring levels of CO2 that they're not getting too high. That's dangerously high. They're not monitoring oxygen going low. Interestingly, that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me. It's like, oh, my desire to take my next breath is to do with carbon dioxide. It's not the desire for oxygen. Yeah, not the low oxygen. So when you're holding your breath and you want to breathe, you feel that desire to breathe, it's got nothing to do with oxygen, which is strange, but it's, 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 it's been shown. There's plenty of science and research to prove that. Um, it's the levels of CO2. And by having poor breathing habits where we breathe from the mouth and upper chest, as I ended up changing with my, with my head injury, but I wasn't aware that's what was happening, we end up breathing faster and we get rid of, we breathe out too much carbon dioxide. So with the Wim Hof um, breathing as an example, it's a really good example is the opposite of this of going, you do those 30 breaths of hyperventilation to try and drive all of the carbon dioxide out of your out of your bloodstream. And then you hold your breath at the end of that. And you hold your breath for like two, three minutes or whatever. You can hold your breath for a long time, right? You don't, you don't have that desire to breathe. It's quite, it's, it, it's, it's nice and relaxing that you're lying there and there is no, there's no desire to breathe because you've got rid of the carbon dioxide, which is your... Uh, trigger effectively from the brain to tell you when to take your next breath um so with Wim Hof is looking at he's using the breath in a very different way to create adaptations in terms of like hormonal responses it's not changing your CO2 tolerance because you're actually getting rid of it whereas we're trying in oxygen to 
allow expose ourselves to this high level of CO2, what those receptors in the brain start to do is adapt to that. They notice this high level and go, you're trying to teach it that, no, this high level of CO2 is a more, um, is a more acceptable level. And then over time, what that changes, and so those receptors start to go. They don't start, they don't panic when when carbon dioxide goes up a little bit and tell you to breathe again. So your breathing rate starts to slow down. Slower in your day-to-day breathing, slower breathing rates are linked to improved heart rate variability, linked to more of a uh, parasympathetic, so the opposite of our fight or flight response, uh, our rest, digest, relaxation response, and that sort of slows and calms things down for you. The other part of the, the role that's carbon dioxide, because you might be like, well, why do you want this high car- higher carbon dioxide? Carbon dioxide is in the blood, is essential for allowing um, hemoglobin, which is the oxygen-carrying component in red blood cells, to release its affinity or its attachment of oxygen and let it go into the cells. So the problem we have when, we're, uh, of, when we don't have very good tolerance to CO2, carbon dioxide, is you'll have faster breathing rates, but equally you'll be breathing and the oxygen that is in your blood won't be released from the hemoglobin because you've got this, you haven't got this exposure to, to carbon dioxide. So oxygen stays in the blood rather than going into the cells where it's needed. Every cell in your body needs oxygen to make energy. And what happens? This habitual cycle of, well, then you don't feel like you're getting enough air in, so you then carry on breathing faster and it just sort of gets worse and then you're, you're left with the point of, like, you're always breathing fast, you're always feeling stressed, you're always feeling tense. When you're feeling like you need to breathe fast, you're very unlikely to breathe through the nose because you can't get it in quick enough. So you breathe through the mouth. Your upper chest is then moving and then you have this tightness around your neck and your shoulders and, and all that sort of like, like everything that comes with the stress response of fast, shallow mouth breathing. So how can anyone listen to this who wants to sort of work out how they're breathing? How can they make sure, how can we make sure we're breathing with our diaphragm rather than just the top of the body? Perfect question. Let's stick. Well, people can do this, but like, um, if, if you're just listening to this, like we, we can follow this along. You don't need to be able to see what's going on on this. So, um, like two key things: breathing through the nose, and, and make sure that I say that through the nose, not with the nose. If I say breathe with your nose, then you'll tend to like, like suck up air with the nose. Now we want the and, and Wim said it in there. It's almost like the doorway or the nose, like the letting air in. Just let it be the gateway, the doorway. So let air in through the nose. What's going to help drive air in or, or facilitate air coming in is your diaphragm moving downwards. So we've got the diaphragm moving downwards and uh, the nose allowing air to come in. The, just to throw in a third one, and this is the, 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 and it's not, it isn't complex, it's simple. It's those two things. The third one is just that the ribs, your lower two ribs, we want those to like expand laterally to just create the space for the diaphragm to be able to move efficiently. So we've got the diaphragm, we've got the nose and we've got the ribs moving. Um, for a lot of people, if you haven't used your nose that much for breathing, like anything, we get this use it or lose it scenario where you haven't been using your nose, so it gets blocked up. So we can do. I'm going to give you two simple things to do to help you unblock your nose and then utilize your uh, make, feel what it's like to use your diaphragm more effectively. So I do want you to breathe in with your nose now. So suck a bit of air in with your nose. You can do this with this, Alex. And I want you to just notice how blocked does your nose feel. So that's me like trying to sniff in basically. Notice whether it feels blocked or not. And then test one nostril. I'm trying to be too close to the mic, it's going to sound horrible. But ten, <laughs> test one nostril to the other. And you'll likely notice my right one feels a little bit more blocked than the other. But generally, you know, over the more, when you start using your nose a lot, like it feels pretty unblocked all the time. But you might notice one is more blocked than the other. Um, that's just the, the brain switches what which nostril you predominantly use throughout the day. 
every 90 minutes apparently so it like gives one nostril a bit of a break just as a interesting uh, interesting fact <laughs> um so then we're going to do this nose um uh, and blocking drill where we do a normal inhale a normal exhale through the nose we're going to pinch the nose and then hold our breath and nod our head 10 times it's really important that when you let go of the nose your first breath you take in is in through the nose um that's because nitric oxide is in the back of the nasal cavity and when we breathe in through the nose after this um, little breath hold, then you, uh, you, you take that nitric oxide into those upper airways and into the lungs. Nitric oxide is poisonous outside of the body, but inside the body, it's a vasodilator, meaning it opens things up. So it opens up your airways, it opens up your blood vessels, sorry, and it helps distribute uh, blood within your lungs more evenly. Mm. You don't have that in the mouth. Like it's a design of the nose to have that. It's also protection. Uh, it's antiviral. So in the times of COVID, you want to be breathing through your nose, not through your mouth, for sure. You have no protection with your mouth. So normal breath in for the nose, normal breath out for the nose, pinch the nose, we'll nod ahead 10 times. I'll do it with you so you're not the only one looking stupid, okay? <laughs> so normal breath in through the nose, normal breath out through the nose, pinch the nose, and then nod. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Let go of the nose and breathe in through the nose. And you'll notice even, right, we do this often like three to five times, but you notice even on that first breath in, it's like I've eaten a, a, a Minto or a Polo. So it's like, do you notice that? It yeah, like, just feels a little yeah. bit clearer. Yeah, if 10 felt easy, um, it's, this is supposed to be super easy. We'll try 15. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just do two together. So normal breath in, normal breath out, pinch the nose and nod 15 times. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. 40, 50. Let go, breathe in through the nose. Good. You and feel it all across can, there. <laughs> say again? You can sort of feel it all across there. <laughs> I say people would love it if you if you, people would love the visual of this of us sort of yeah. sat, there, sat there nodding ahead. Not gonna put so you, <laughs> if you breathe in through the nose now, just by doing two of those, it should feel a bit clearer. You test one nostril compared to the other. Do they, does it feel does it feel clearer now? People should be able to answer that themselves. Hopefully, just after two, yeah. it starts to feel a little bit clearer. So it's easier for then you to start to use your nose. Now the diaphragm. If you find your two um, your two lower ribs on either side of the body, yeah. So here are my ribs it's coming up, and they get they where they meet at my sternum. We call that the infrasternum. We call it. It's called the infrasternal angle. On our inhales, we want that infrasternal angle to open and widen. And on our exhales, we want it to close and come back together. So effectively, we want these lower ribs to be moving outwards and inwards. So outwards on an inhale to allow the diaphragm to move down. Now, if I ask you to tense or contract your diaphragm, you might find that difficult to do, and you'll just tense your abs. If I ask you to tense your bicep, you probably know how to do that because you've done it before. You know what that feels like. You've got that brain connection to that muscle. So the diaphragm works, obviously, is our primary breathing muscle. It works on that inhale. On the exhale, it just relaxes and goes back to the position you don't. There's a nice thing about breathing, exhales, you don't need to do anything. It just returns on its own. But if you're a bit of a control freak in life, it's likely that you hold on and you still try to control your exhales as well. So understand yourself and your personality will help with this uh, or help you to just let go of things a little bit, even with the, the breath can teach you that. So um, we're going to do... Um, uh, it's basically a breath hold, but not challenging at all in, in terms of like how long you do it. It's just we are going to do a normal inhale and normal exhale like we just did for the unblocking drill. We'll pinch the nose and then I want you to put your hand just underneath your sternum where your diaphragm sits underneath those two lower ribs. 
and you're going to try and breathe in whilst you've blocked your nose and got your mouth closed. And what you're going to feel is that uh, your diaphragm underneath that hand is you're going to feel it moving, pulsing. Okay. So you're going to try and take a long, like a long, slow breath in. Try and maybe do a couple of them whilst you're holding your breath. So normal breath in, normal breath out, pinch your nose. You should feel the diaphragm moving down and out against against your hand. It's going to feel like a weird muscle feeling underneath your underneath your hand, deep uh, deep underneath your abs. Yeah, you feel that? Yeah. So that's that's the diaphragm. Okay. Um, try and make that connection to the diaphragm so that when we're breathing, if we were breathing now, um, you're, it'd be quite it's quite nice to put your hands either side of those two bottom ribs. Try to make the diaphragm think about the diaphragm moving downwards. And as you breathe in, those ribs moving out, so your hands are going to move slightly outwards. And just let air enter through the nose. Don't, don't suck in through the nose. Just let air enter through the nose. And then on the exhale, you can just relax. You relax. Hands come back together those, as those ribs come closer together. The diaphragm moves back to its resting position. And then ideally, if we've got good carbon dioxide tolerance, there should be like a nice relaxed exhale and a, and, and a natural pause, not a force, but a natural pause at the end of our exhale where the diaphragm can relax because you're not having to do anything. And then after that pause, the, the inhale starts again and the diaphragm moves down and the air enters through the nose. And there's none of this sort of shoulder, upper chest movement going on. Mm -hmm. So if you do this in front of the mirror so you can see yourself, you'll get a good idea of, of how you're moving. The other one to do would be put one hand on your chest and one hand on, uh, on your tummy. And just start as you breathe, try to ensure that it's the bottom hand that's moving rather than the top one. You know, the key to changing anything in life, the starting point is awareness. Yeah. Do you know how you're currently breathing now? So that because if you don't know how you're breathing now, you're not going to be able to change it and improve it. But there's just a couple of really simple things that people can do as just a starting point of like, use your diaphragm, know how to connect to it, use your nose for breathing in and out as much as you can, um, and um, let those ribs start to move to allow that that space to happen cool thank you for that hopefully that's going to be useful to yeah, anyone hopefully. who wants to get into it just to go back to the sort of the, the movement side of things um when i was researching this i feel like you have quite a complex relationship with the word impossible <laughs> <laughs> is that fair <laughs> yes i was complex uh well, maybe exciting that's i was because exciting yeah but yeah because that's obviously that's where the idea of the human flag and, and mm. training to do that came from. So what, what is so important about having something impossible to train for? Um, like we coined the phrase, uh, again, Tim's, Tim's, Tim at School Guys has got all the good ideas. So he coined the phrase, um, redefine your impossible. That was like, because we were, when we first tried to do human flag, like we 100%, well, not maybe 99.9% .9 thought it was impossible. I was like, seen a picture i've never seen one do, never and it never i'd never seen someone do one i'd just seen a photo of it and you're like is that real is this a, or is it just photoshop that's how i feel and, when i look at the photos of you doing it i'm like yeah yeah I they're mean, all photoshopped don't worry <laughs> oh, <are they? laughs> no no no, no. They're, they're, not. they're all real they're all real <laughs> but um yeah and it's fascinating what the human body is capable of doing and you know seeing videos of people like frank madrano on youtube it was, it was just like just captured my imagination i love a challenge and it was just like that i want to be able to do that it was like you know i think it's impossible but i've just seen someone else do it even though it's on a youtube video i haven't seen them in person seeing someone else do it if they can do it then surely i can that was sort of my mentality um do you think and the thing like, 
Go ahead. No, I was going to say, do you think that we often sort of look at someone doing that and think, oh, I couldn't do that? Like, it is possible, but not yes. for me. I think that there's it, it, that comes down to, like, uh, an awareness thing. What is your personality like? If I see someone else do something, to me, I'm like, that... I mean, I'm sure there'll be some stuff I could, I'd see someone doing it, I can't, I'm never going to be able to do that. It would be impossible. But generally, it's sort of like, if another human being has done it, then I could do it. It's like, there is that could. I'm probably highly unlikely to be able to do it because I'm not going to put the time, energy and effort into like master something that's really difficult, if you know what I mean. Um, but if you do want to do it, the fact that you know, we're all, we're all uniquely different, but we're all like, there is beauty in the fact that we're all the same as well like we're not no one's special compared to no one has special powers compared to someone else um and so uh, when i'd seen someone that was like that just gave me the permission to go yeah like dream if, if you wanted to do that then yeah go for it um and i think that captures a lot that resonates with a lot of people that engage with our our online training and and um and memberships that we provide for people where they go yeah, like I think that's probably impossible, but there's this little little tiny thing inside of me that thinks like I would like to do that and like maybe if that person did it then then so can I. And you know, we we didn't come from um, a gymnastics background, you know, everything that we're trying to do we'd never done before. Um first time I tried to do a handstand I just fell over and landed on my head. And that was one of the things you said in the intro, it's like why <laughs> you said in the intro and I was like, This is a really good point. It was um you know, you think after having a head injury, you'd probably just like physically take it easy and, and stuff. And like, why? Someone else asked me that on a podcast recently. And it was like, why Why did you try and do those? And I was like, I don't know. I guess I don't know any other way. I've, I've always loved doing sport and being active. But um, but yeah, the uh, it's actually really important for your brain, whether you've had a head injury or not to keep using it to like uh, cognitively like the neuroplasticity like we know that as we as we get older the same use it or lose it with your nose if you don't use your brain like you, you you're going to start to you're going to start to lose it so important that we learn new skills um that helps with the brain rewire itself if you know as adults when do we learn something brand new as a kid you do it all the time you do it all the time through like exploring most of the time you learn how to walk not with a coach you learn it through exploring and just trying. Um, and that's like a new motor skill and you're learning and your brain is like loving it. And as adults, we often don't learn something new. So that's one of the things that we really push with, with the calisthenics thing to encourage people to em embrace something that's, that's a little bit pushes you outside of your comfort zone, um, helps you learn a new skill. And once you achieve that thing that you previously thought was impossible, mentally, what that does for you, not just in your training, but it teaches you that like, Okay, that thing that I thought was I couldn't do, I've, there's a process for me to learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. And then how can that transcend? This is what we really love is like, we love training, but how can that impact other areas of your life, more important areas of your life? That relationship that's broken that you really need to address that you think is impossible, I'm never going to be able to like, you know, rekindle that broken relationship. Well, actually, it, that's why I used to think about this other thing. And using yeah. training as a tool or a vehicle to teach us that, there is a process that can take anything that feels impossible to, to learn how to change it and make those improvements. Um, this is um, this is part of the resilience coaching that I do. It's like taking um, the things that you feel like you can't do. And when yeah. you do them, it destroys that narrative of, oh, I can't, mm. I can't, I shouldn't. 
you know yeah. I must stay small or whatever and you just get your comfort zone gets bigger and bigger and bigger and like you say you yes. can take on other things that aren't physical challenges maybe they're emotional challenges or maybe it works the other way around so yeah yeah definitely I think it's really exciting um although I don't know could I do a human flag I can do a headstand maybe I could do a human flag at some point hey redefine redefine your impossible maybe I feel like the female body though like a bigger bum is going to stop you or maybe it will help you glutes are they essential for there's you? there's you can there's uh i could make up a hundred excuses for you as to okay, why you fine. can't <laughs> if you want if you want but then i can show you some women that are older than you have had more injuries in the past than you and i can show you them doing a human flag okay so that's me that, told basically and that yeah and it does and that's what it does it just it just breaks down that um you know, we've got some amazing females part of our online community and they're like there's one lady truda she's had like scoliosis she was told like had a brace like her you see she's got a x-ray of a, what her spine used to be like i think she's got two or three kids she's like mid 40s and she is an absolute badass so what i usually ask people to finish with is one note on vulnerability so one piece of advice or insight that you think relates to vulnerability that could help people to embrace it more to sort of see it as a positive um i was going to use that word i was going to that you just said embrace it um like see it as an opportunity rather than a weakness like rather than i i used to do and you know rather than thinking of it as a weakness think of it as like for me to be able as you as you allow yourself and give yourself the permission to be to be vulnerable you are being stronger as a result of it, um, there's a lot more to be learned on the other on the other side of the door of vulnerability, um, rather than just staying in your comfort zone. Okay, well, thank you very much for that. That's been a really interesting chat. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.